Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline. I'm Frank Rossi. Turfgrass Hotline is brought to you by our partners at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends all in one pass. Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. And the Plant Food Company, developing professional nutrient management programs since 1946. I get to visit the Pacific Northwest and have attended the Microdokium Field Day the last several years held at Oregon State University. In those trials, Civitas turf defense from Intelligro, in combination with phosphites, has become the standard treatment for Microdokium patch control that all other treatments are compared against. Learn more about Civitas turf defense available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline, Clint Maddox. It's always great to chat with you in the Pacific Northwest about what's going on growing grass, promoting that great program uh, at Oregon State University and just having chats about a variety of things. Let's start with how the shutdown has been for you guys uh, personally and professionally out at Oregon State. How has the shutdown uh, affected your operation and and the research going on? I know because (laughs) I saw you, that was the last trip I took before everything happened. So how's it been going since then? Yeah, so um, I defended my uh, dissertation in February. And then after that, the uh, COVID came. And um, we basically haven't been on campus for basically since that time, um, which has shut down all of our lab work. But Mm -hmm. as you know, most of our stuff is out in the field. Mm -hmm. So we have been able to go out to the research station. I know some people in the nation haven't been so lucky as us, but Mm -hmm. we are uh, required to stagger. So I work in the afternoons, Brian works in the morning, and then, you know, some of others, the new members of our team, um, which we'll maybe talk about a little bit later, Mm -hmm. um, also come out in the, you know, morning or afternoon just to stagger. So we're not working at the same time to keep the social distancing. Okay, good. So, So you're making the adaptations everybody else is making. And I saw a tweet that you put out recently that showed yellow patch and microdokium in the same slide. Uh, when I was there in February, you never have any problem getting the most beautiful microdokium patch that I've ever seen going. What was the winter like? Was it uh, warmer and drier or warmer and wetter than normal? Well, so our late fall was uh, much uh, warmer than normal and um, actually drier too. We had a little bit more rain in December than in the other months, in January, sorry. But our weather's a little bit, like I said, it was drier and a little bit warmer, but we still get microdokium patch. And, you know, it's funny because I'll run into superintendents at like our pesticide seminar in December and they'll say, hey, wasn't it a really heavy microdokium patch year? And I'm like, I don't know, guys. I always see microdokium patch first week of September. And I usually am waiting, 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 hoping I'm going to have a lot of disease by our field day in February. And lo and behold, around Christmas time, it's just an explosion of microdokium patch. And it was the same this year. Even though um, our precipitation was a little bit less in the fall and I was a little bit warmer, so it felt like it was uh, you know, lower for some people. But you know, as soon as the weather turns in December, January, February, we get a lot of disease. So it's almost the way you describe it and the way I've learned it from paying attention to the work going on out there for years has been that it's essentially endemic. I mean, you can set your watch by it. You're going to have four months or five months or six months or 10 months or some consistent months of intense pressure reliably. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I'm waiting for that 12 month of microdokium patch year where we can see it every month. But we are we're on our way because uh, you know, like you said, we're seeing it in June, and it's you know we're only two weeks from July, and I can guarantee I can find it at the end of August somewhere in Oregon. So I build these area under disease progress curves, which is basically just a graph of you know looking at the disease over the year, and you can just put them one on top of each other for the last 10 years, and they basically look the same. 
The peak is going to be in February. There's quite a bit of disease uh, starting up in January, and there's just minor amount of disease the rest of the months. Mm. And we would not have to inoculate. It's coming on just like a sports team. You know, it's going to be there in February. It's a season and that's what's going on. And, and that's why, you know, since you've been out there, you guys have been determined to build on some of the work going on around developing your own, let's just say less traditional alternative control programs, as well as the tried and true fungicide programs uh, that are available. So, you know, I like the idea that you sort of have both those options available to the professionals out there. But now the weather is should start be starting to change. Yes, you. Sh- I mean, I saw that you had yellow patch, but you also commented, hey, it looks like it's going to grow soon. So as yeah. we start to grow late June into early July, that's when the dry weather starts to kick in. Is that correct? So you do want some recovery here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is a finicky time of year. So in uh, late fall and this time in the spring, we often get yellow patch and microdochium together. I mean, that's not uncommon for us. And so superintendents really need to be able to manage for both of those diseases. And so often, you know, we typically always have a slide at the end of a presentation saying, you know, you can use, you know, azoxystrobin to control microdochium patch, but what it's really going to be good at is adding it into a mix in order to control that yellow patch. So what we usually end up doing is having people apply uh, propiconazole and azoxystrobin in the spring around this time of year so they can control both diseases. But the thing that's a little bit more finicky is that we start to get anthracnose too. We have anthracnose on our green as well right now. Ah. So uh, in anthracnose, especially in my long-term trial where I'm not spraying any fungicides, I'm not sure I ever kill that stuff. I can yeah. find uh, a servuli almost all year rounds. But huh. you know, we had a hot peak Um, Now it's cool and wet, so the yellow patch is coming up a little bit more, but this is a big uh, mix of diseases right now. And so that's what you're saying. It's a finicky time of year. I don't know how it's been out there, but back here, especially in New York, you know, with the sort of community spread and devastation of loss of life we had, we all Mm -hmm. got scared back here and we were looking at each other saying, we don't know if we're going to get back out here. We don't know if they're going to let us work. Some states, they wouldn't let people work. And so a lot of guys went to heavy growth regulation that seems to be transitioning into other problems as the seasons progressed. Was there any sense that you guys tried to put the brakes on things? Because, you know, you can grow grass all the time pretty much out there. Did you put the brakes on things even harder when the pandemic came? And, And if so, did that lead to some other problems? Well, so uh, we definitely um, heard from superintendents who were not going to be applying any nitrogen, but I don't think people went out because we were still able to go out and work. I mean, golf was only intermittently delayed or uh, not allowed to be played in Washington and in Oregon. So people were still able to get out and do maintenance, um, not like maybe as bad as it was in the East Coast as far as like people not being out at all in the course. And of course, you know, the staffing had was a real challenge and things like that, but they were still able to do, you know, the minimum amount of mowing. Right, And so I haven't heard the same things as I heard, uh, I think, on the last hotline with Rich Buckley uh, yeah. when you were talking about this, you know, restarting the nitrogen and now you got other kind of issues coming up. We don't get that. So that's interesting. You didn't have that complete shutdown. That's really good. And, and it's nice to have that consistency during the growing season that you didn't have this sort of real big disruption like we've had back east. But now you're coming into the dry weather. And that's the thing that's consistent across the whole state, right? Well, some part of the state gets some rainfall at certain times of the year. The other part stays dry. But now pretty much it's dry for everybody out there in this time of year. Is that correct? 
Correct. Yeah. Oregon's yeah, known to be uh, cool and wet, uh, but it's actually only cool and wet on the west side mm-hmm. along the Pacific Ocean for about, I don't know, maybe 100 miles in. Mm-hmm. And uh, the east side of the state's more could be better described as a high desert right. most of the year. But then now the west side of the state where we are in the valley is not going to get any rain for probably about 12 weeks. And so, yeah, it's anthracnose season. If you got any bent grass, which of course we're not known for a lot of bent grass, there's a little risk of dollar spot out there. But when you get that intense dry weather, if the work at Rutgers showed us anything, is that moisture management and navigating that time, especially if you're, you know, you're basically growing annual bluegrass that's had to get used to the rhythm of this, Clint. It has to get used to being wet and cool and wet and and get what it needs for the seven or eight months it can get it when it's ideal Irish weather for it, right? And then live through this dry period. And that's where you really got to watch yourself not to create too much stress. Do you still see guys skimping on the end or, or have guys gotten smart about the end? Well, when we do hear problems, it's, you know, low nitrogen, golf courses aren't applying a lot of nitrogen. And then sometimes we get into a problem where there's this overregulation with PGRs and mm-hmm. uh, DMIs, which mm-hmm. we've been working on some research on that as well. Right. But one thing, I mean, annual bluegrass, it is dry, but it's also pretty happy out here because in the evening, right. it'll be 105 in the day at a hottest day. Mm-hmm. And it'll still be 50 degrees Fahrenheit at night. Perfect. So, you know, it's really annual bluegrass is the really the best adapted grass here. And this is something, you know, Bingru Wong said many years ago, and I think it's shown in other crops too. That the ability to recover in the evening for C3 plants to get that cool temperature relief and probably reallocation of moisture in the evening mm-hmm. as you know water can wick up into the plant. We're having those conditions right now, Clint. I mean, it's dry, yeah. but it's 47 degrees at night. So mm-hmm. yes, annual bluegrass does fairly well here. We just don't yeah. see it like this very often. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a limited amount of time in the middle of the day where photosynthesis is going to shut off for annual bluegrass when it's, yeah. you know, above 105 or whatever. But right. uh, there's there's a lot of time during the day, uh, you know, multiple hours in the morning and multiple hours in the evening when the temperatures are, uh, you know, fine for photosynthesis for annual bluegrass. And so, listen, this is a perfect transition to your guys' involvement with the annual bluegrass project, the USDA big multi-million dollar annual bluegrass project. You want to take a second We'll do some rapid fire on some of these projects. Sort of what is this project? Who's working on it? And, and what is the emphasis you guys are putting into it? Yeah, so this USDA ACRI grant is a national grant working on um, herbicide resistance in annual bluegrass. It mainly started in the southeast part of the United States uh, with the universities down there. It's led by Texas a and I'm probably going to forget all the universities, but there's about a 10 universities involved, a lot of great people. Exciting for me because I get to work with all these weed scientists. Yep. Um, what we're specifically focused on here in Oregon is we're working on um, collecting annual bluegrass plants. We're kind of like, in many ways, the place where herbicides aren't used. We're kind of right. like the control place. Right. And then uh, we're doing really fun things. I get to go to the mountains um, every two weeks in the Cascades to work on a site in the eastern Oregon mm-hmm. to do a common garden. We're counting annual bluegrass germination in both Corvallis and in eastern Oregon. And then uh, Alyssa uh, Kane, our master student, she's uh, doing multiple projects looking at 
um, how annual bluegrass grows in combination with perennial ryegrass, mm-hmm. tall fescue, with some allelopathy things with Kentucky bluegrass. Um, it's a re- really exciting stuff and it gets us to look at things other than disease, other than microdoking patch. That's right. And it's interesting because really the USDA project, for those people who don't know, really know anything about what this big multi-million dollar multiple university national project is focused on, it's really focused on the weediness and the ecology and the growth of annual bluegrass, uh, not so much some of the performance and functional things that we might look at in other ways. And now, are you also part of the fine fescue trial of the national yes. project that Eric Watkins is leading up? Correct. Yeah. So Emily Braithwaite, of our, one of our faculty research assistants, is uh, working um, heavily on that. Mm-hmm. So that's really exciting too, because we got a lot of fine. We got everything growing at the farm now. So we got our uh, all the fine fescue plots. There's fertility and irrigation and mowing and trials going on with those. So yeah, it's really exciting to be able to show those to all the people out here. And yeah, so we're really lucky to be a part of both of those big grants. So you're involved in these national programs, but you've also got a couple of long-term studies that you're doing. And I will say, I've always been a big fan of long-term ecological research or long-term stuff. Now, long-term in the turf world is anything more than two to three years. Uh, I've had several projects that have gone on for seven to 10 to 15 years. And it's mostly Mm -hmm. because of my early exposure to the Rothamsted project back in the UK, where these long park grass experiments. And then Micah Woods came and worked with me here and, and we cultivated a mutual interest in that, got to visit the place. And I know you started some of this. So uh, let's start with the cultivation one that I Mm -hmm. saw you tweet about the other day. You want to take a minute and talk about what that trial is looking at? Yeah. So a new member of our team, Dr. Chas Schmid, uh, other Rutgers uh, PhD grad, um, is leading that. Uh, We're looking at uh, comparing solid and hollow tine aerification in different top dressing regimes either aerifying once in the spring, once in the fall, or both, and then top dressing at two different rates. So what we're basically looking at is organic matter management and infiltration, soil tests as well. And people still are wondering if we need to aerify. And and Chaz was intimately involved mm-hmm. with that project down in Nebraska for mm-hmm. when he was down there as a master's student. Mm-hmm. So um, he's really leading the charge on that. So that just started a couple months ago. And uh, it's going to go on here for at least three years. And so it's going to be pretty um, cool to watch that uh, progress throughout the, the next few seasons. And you've also got a Civitas trial? Yeah, so we have a long-term microdokium patch alternative trial that's going to go into its third winter uh, now. And that's really exciting. So we're looking at different ways of using Civitas, uh, iron sulfate, right. phosphorus acid, or some commonly known as potassium phosphites, mm-hmm. and sulfur. And it's really fun now because I have plots that have not had a fungicide in three years. What do they look like? Well, not so bad, to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, they get the alternative fungicide. So these are plots that are getting, you know, civitas and phosphite rotated with sulfur and phosphite. Right. And, you know, they look pretty good all year round. The one thing that's been really surprising is this, the iron sulfate plots, they get so much anthracnose in the summertime. It's just oh, amazing. Wow. We're taking soil tests and we're going to be able to follow that and see the progression. of. And, and part of the motivation was the concern that maybe Civitas was building up in the soil profile or iron. It's going to build up in the soil profile. Correct. These were soil questions you were asking in both of these long-term trials. You're really looking at the soil as a component of the study, yes? Correct, yeah. So we're doing uh, soil tests every spring. We're doing water infiltration as well. Mm-hmm. We haven't found any differences in water infiltration yet, and we don't expect to. I haven't seen any kind of anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. at all that that would be a thing. Um, I'm 
definitely I'm suspecting that there's going to be some soil test differences, of course, because sulfur and iron sulfate are decreasing the pH. Mm. And um, I'm also really interested in seeing, you know, how this potassium phosphite, um, it does, does it convert to phosphorus? I mean, I speculate yes, but, you know, I haven't had a lot of long-term studies actually measuring that. So we're really looking forward to that. Yeah. And, you know, we've gotten away with using phosphites over the years in our industry, even though it's got phosphorus in it. And even though it's sold as a phosphorus fertilizer, in many places that have phosphorus banned, Mm -hmm. we've been able to continue to use this technology on the assumption that it doesn't convert to phosphorus. So obviously that's going to be really important work long-term. And it's so great to see the turf associations, both in Canada and in that part of the world, uh, continue to support your work. Because I do think, Clint, we're going to have to work more regionally. I mean, there's nobody in Washington, really, that I, other than Gwen, that we interact with, she's teaching, not doing widespread extension. Uh, So it's really important that you keep up this work. And I'm really grateful to you and Alec and Brian. And I see that you brought on Chaz and you've got Emily and big congrats to you becoming a PhD. Uh, Lots of exciting things going on out there in the program. Yeah, we have uh, two other members, uh, Dr. Rennie Wang, also from Rutgers. She's working on endophytes and um, disease dip- and control and fine fescues. Excellent. And then Alyssa Kane, I mentioned earlier. So we're a pretty big team. And it's really exciting. Uh, I've seen a lot of change since 2013. So Well, and listen, if you want to study annual bluegrass in the United States and in Canada, you got a place where it's uniquely suited, even better than the Northeastern United States. It's absolutely perfect annual bluegrass weather, that little eco-region, I don't know, from San Francisco all the way up to Victoria Island, would you say? Correct. Yeah, that's uh, the same um, landmarks I use when I talk about uh, our area. So, right, yeah. Perfect. Well, listen, I, we've been talking long enough for you to teach me that I knew the <laughs> eco-region uh, for that. And listen, wish you the best of luck for a safe and productive growing season. Clint, thanks for taking the time to join me. Thanks for having me, Frank. It's always a pleasure. The newly minted PhD, Dr. Clint Maddox, is a postdoctoral scholar at Oregon State University, where he studies microdochian patch and works with a team of researchers and extension professionals serving the entire Pacific Northwest from San Francisco, California to Victoria, BC. The Turfgrass Hotline is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more, and the Plant Food Company, developing professional nutrient management programs since 1946. The Turfgrass Hotline is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.